0: Father, just like that song said, we want you to speak. May your voice be heard through your word today. You are the great shepherd of the sheep, Lord. The sheep hear your voice. Speak, Lord, that we might be instructed, that we might grow in grace, that we might become more holy, that we might bring more glory and honor to you. In Jesus' name, amen. For the last several chapters in the book of Romans, Paul has been making a distinction between two different groups of people. In chapter 5, Paul talked about those who have Adam for their representative, and then he also talked about those who have Christ for their representative, two different groups. In chapter 6, he talked about those who are slaves of sin and those who are slaves of God, two different groups. In chapter 7, he talked about those who are married to the law and those who are married to Christ, two different groups. In chapter 8, he talked about those who are in the flesh and those who are in the spirit, two different groups. Well, when we come to chapter 8 verses 14 to 16, Paul uses another phrase to describe those who are in this group over here, the saved, and he calls them the sons of God. He calls them that over and over. One of the very best ways... I'm going to give you a tip now, believers, because I I hope and pray that you're students of the Bible, that you take time to study Scripture. One of the best ways to study the Bible is once you've identified a passage that you're looking at, find out what the central idea of that passage is. I don't know if you know what I'm talking about, but it can be a phrase or a sentence. You distill that paragraph or that chapter down into one phrase that sums up what it's about and the best way to do that is to notice the repeated words and phrases within that section. So let's do that. Let's apply that to this section. Okay. Romans eight, 14 to 16 for all who are being led by the spirit of God. These are sons of God for you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, But you have received a spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. Now, I went a little bit too long, but let's just take 14, 15, and 16. Do you see any word that, or similar words to keep repeating? There you go. Okay, so let's take a look, read it again, and we'll pull these words out. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are, here it comes, sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons. 16. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children Children, sons, sons. Paul's emphasizing this point over and over. Now, does anything else keep repeating itself in these verses? Spirit. Spirit. There's There's the second one. Notice that. All who are being led by the Spirit of God. Verse 14. Verse 15. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption. 16. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit. So you've got these two twin themes, and it's very easy to find them, right? You just read the passage and notice what keeps repeating. So as you study the Bible, put this into practice in your life, and it's going to enrich your spiritual life. So if we were to make a central idea out of 14, 15, and 16, and we know that one theme is the sons of God, and one theme is the spirit of God, it's pretty easy to draw the conclusion. How does the spirit of God work in the sons of God? That's what Paul is answering here. And that's what we want to delve into today. How does the Spirit of God work in the sons of God? And I'm going to bring forth three great truths. Number one, the Spirit leads them to put sin to death. Number two, the Spirit causes them to cry out, Abba, Father. Three, the Spirit testifies with their spirit that they are children of God. All right, let's get into it. First one, the Spirit leads them to put sin to death. In order to get the context, let's start in verse 12. And let's go on the way up through verse 14. Verse 12 says, So then, brethren, we are under obligation, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. Now, as a young believer, when I read verse 14 and I listened to pastors preach, they would always say that to be led by the Spirit is to receive this guidance by the Spirit. In other words, if I wanted to know where I should move, then if I'm truly a son of God, the Holy Spirit will lead me to know what house to move into, what city to move to, where to go, or what college I should go to or who I should marry, you know, these big decisions in life, the Spirit will lead me into those. But that's not what Paul's talking about. That's not what he's talking about at all. And we know that because of the word that begins verse 14. What is it? Four. When you are studying your Bible, notice the connecting words. The words at the beginning of sentences, because they will tell you a lot about what he means by what he's trying to communicate. The word for means because. So a connecting word would be therefore, so then, in order that, since. This one is for. It means he's going to give you the reason why he's just said verse uh, 13. In verse 13 he says, if by the Spirit you're putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Well, why will we live if we put to death the deeds of the body? Because all who are being led by the spirit of God, these are the sons of God. You will live because you're a son of God. Now there's two things that are parallel in verse 13, putting to death the deeds of the body. What is that parallel to in verse 14? Being led by the spirit. If by the spirit you're putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live for all who are being led by the Spirit. He's, he, You see what he's doing? He's restating what he just said in verse 13 in another way in verse 14. To put to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit is to be led by the Spirit. Do you see that from the scripture? Yes. He's not talking about supernatural guidance. He's talking about holiness in the life of the Christian. You see, the Holy Spirit is holy. <laughs> Pretty simple. He's holy, and what he does is he leads every Christian in whom he indwells into greater and greater holiness. That's his primary ministry in your life and my life. He is there to make us holy. He's there to make us like Jesus Christ. Now, am I sure that I'm on the right track with this? I'm sure, because there's only one other time in the whole New Testament where it talks about being led by the Spirit and applies it to Christians, and it's Galatians chapter 5. We're going to look at that in a minute. There are two other instances where the Bible talks about Jesus being led by the Spirit when he was tempted in the wilderness. But when it comes to New Testament Christians, there's only two places in the entire New Testament that uses the phrase led by the Spirit. So let's look at the other one, and let's see if it confirms or rejects our theory here. Galatians chapter 5. Verse 16. Galatians 5.16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the Spirit... You are not under the law. Now, think, think context. He's, he's, he talks about being led by the Spirit in verse 18, but in verses 16 and 17, he explains to you what it means to be led by the Spirit. Do you see it, folks? In 16 and 17, he talks about how the flesh and the Spirit are in opposition to each other. The desire of the flesh is opposed to the, the, the desire of the Spirit, but to be led by the Spirit is to fight against the desires of the flesh by the Spirit. This is exactly what he's saying in Romans chapter 8. Putting to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit is to be led by the Spirit. Being opposed to the desires of the flesh is to be led by the Spirit. It's the same thing. He's just using slightly different language to describe waging war on sin by the power of the Spirit. That is what it means to be led by the Spirit in the New Testament. Now, I'm not denying that the Spirit can lead us. He does. He does lead us. But that's not what Paul means when he uses that phrase. He means that the Spirit is the Holy Spirit, and when the Holy Spirit leads you, are you following Him into greater and greater sanctification? Are you putting more and more of your sin to death by His power? Now, back to Romans chapter 8. He says there in verse 14, for all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. Literally, if you took a look at the interlinear, literally it reads like this. As many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. Now that tells us something. That tells us that these and these only are the sons of God. As many as are being led by the Holy Spirit into holiness, these and these only are the sons of God. In other words, folks, if you and I, if it's not the habit of our life to wage war on our sin, we have no biblical reason to believe that we are children of God. Because Paul says that is a mark of a child of God. These and these only. Now, if you're indulging yourself in sin, and it doesn't bother you. You have no biblical reason to think that the spirit of God is even in you indwelling you or making you like Christ. But the opposite is also true. If you are in the habit of waging war on sin, that's a solid biblical evidence that the Holy Spirit is indwelling you, which is a wonderful thing and assuring thing for the child of God another thing i want you to notice in verse 14 and i guess we're going to be a little bit technical we're going to really dig deep into the scripture today but one of the things that i notice here is that the holy spirit is always leading us to put sin to death it's not like spasmodically here or he does it a little bit there and then five years later he does a little bit more i get that because in the greek being led by the spirit of god is in the present tense which means it's an ongoing continual activity. It's also passive. It's not us doing something. It's the spirit leading us. We're passively being led by this spirit, but he's doing it constantly. It's an ongoing activity. This is the spirit's constant work in our life. My question to you is, if he's constantly leading you into holiness, are you following him as he's leading you? When he leads you in that direction, do you go? Are you partnering with him? Are you surrendering to his leadership? Another implication from this text is that not everybody in the world is a child of God. How many times when I'm witnessing do I hear people say, well, we're all God's children, right? As though that somehow gets them off the hook when I talk about their sin and I talk about judgment to come. Well, no, we're not all God's children, (laughs) Galatians 3.26 says, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. If you don't exercise biblical saving faith in Christ Jesus, you're not his son. We are sons of God either through being born again, regeneration, and also through adoption. If you haven't been adopted into the family or born into the family by the work of the Spirit, you're not his child, you're not his son. That's, that's one of the modern thoughts in our pluralistic age where everybody's right, nobody's wrong, all religions are equally valid, all roads lead to God, everybody's a child of God, right? Just as long as you're sincere and you believe in something, you're okay. That's, that's a lie from the pit of hell. That's, the devil would like us to believe that. He wants people to think that they're okay until they stand before the judge of all the earth and they hear, depart from me, you accursed ones, into the eternal fire. The devil would like us to believe that. Jesus said to the religious people, not, not the sinners, the religious people, you are of your father, the devil. So you can be religious, you can be moral, and you can be the son of Satan. That's exactly what Jesus said to them. Yes. What's this about? Once you're saved, you'll be saved. Oh, once saved, always saved. Keep that question at the very end. We'll discuss that. Okay, you bet. So that's the first truth that emerges from here: the Spirit leads the sons of God to put sin to death. It's a distinguishing mark of a true child of God. Okay, let's look at the second one: the Spirit causes sons of God to cry out, "Abba, Father." And we're going to take our time here because it's going to take some time to develop this. This is verse 15. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. Now, the first thing we need to decide when we look at verse 15 is, what does Paul mean by spirit in verse 15? you notice the New American Standard Version uses a small s. But if you look at the ESV, the NLT, the New King James, or the NIV, they use a capital S for spirit of adoption. The Greek doesn't help us because the Greek doesn't use punctuation marks, and in the Greek it's all capitals. So you have to decide from the context if this is the Holy Spirit or this is talking about our spirit. You get my question? So we have to decide that. There are two reasons why I believe this has to be referring to the Holy Spirit, not our spirit. And so I would disagree with the translators of the New American Standard who give us a small S here. There's two reasons. Number one, verse 15 is bracketed on both sides, verse 14 and verse 16. And in both of those verses, it's obvious that he's talking about the Holy Spirit. There's no question. Verse 14, all who are being led by the Spirit of God. Verse 16, the Spirit himself. So that's obviously the Holy Spirit. It seems likely then that sandwiched in between those two bookends, he's probably also talking about that same person, the Holy Spirit. But that's not all. There is a parallel passage in Galatians chapter 4 that makes it exceedingly clear. Let's go over there. This is a very important passage for us to be aware of as we're reading Romans 8. Uh, It's Galatians chapter 4. Verses 4 through 7. You might keep a finger in both places, because we want to compare Romans chapter 8 with Galatians chapter 4. Very similar. Okay, Galatians 4 verse 4. But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Now, if if you just like took a piece of paper and drew a line down the middle and wrote everything you saw about Romans 8 on this side, and then tried to find out if there's anything like that in Galatians 4, you're going to have all kinds of things that match each other. Like in both places, it talks about adoption as sons. In both places, it talks about heirs. In both places, it talks about sons, sons of God. In both places, it talks about Abba, Father. These are obviously parallel passages. But in Romans 8, it says, God is... Um, well, I'm not going to quote it right. Let me just read it. Romans 8, he says, You have received a spirit of adoption. In Galatians 4, it says... God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So the spirit of adoption in Romans 8 has to be the Holy Spirit. When you compare these two parallel passages, it can't be our spirit. Because Galatians 4 makes it clear that this is the spirit of God's son that has been sent into our hearts that causes us to cry, Abba, Father. Are you following with me? Okay, that's the first thing that we need to make clear. When we come to Romans 8, we're talking about the Holy Spirit in chapter 8, verses 14, 15, and 16. So I believe that every single reference in these three verses is to the Holy Spirit, except for one reference, and that's in verse 16, where it says the, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit. Of course, that's, that's talking about our spirit. But every place else, I believe he's talking about the Holy Spirit in this section. So let me paraphrase this for you. We'll paraphrase verse 15. When you were saved, the Holy Spirit did not come in to give you a cringing, slavish fear of God. Instead, he confirmed your adoption into God's family by causing you to cry out, daddy, father. Okay. Now let's look at the first half of verse 15. This is the negative part of verse 14 or 15. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again. We'll stop there. You have not received a spirit of slavery I believe he's saying when the Holy Spirit came in, the Holy Spirit did not lead you again to consider God as a cruel, harsh taskmaster who is holding the gavel of judgment over your head and was just wanting to crush you and punish you for your sin. When you became a son of God, that's not the kind of God that you came to relate to. In fact... Romans 4.15 says that the law brings about wrath. And here I believe Paul is talking to believers who at one time were under the law. That's why he uses the word again. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again. At one time you did relate to God as a slave to a master. And you were afraid of him. And I think what he's talking about there is at one time you had no sense that your sins were pardoned. You only could understand God as a harsh, cruel master who delighted in bringing punishment on those who disobeyed. And so the only idea you could come up with at that time to try to get free of your sins was to try to obey God better. And so you tried and you worked. You tried to be obedient, but the more you did that, the more you found yourself failing. And so you had this terrible relationship to God where there was no way you could be freed from it. The dread of judgment to come is about all you had in that relationship towards God. So when the Holy Spirit came in, he didn't come in to perpetuate these feelings of dread and punishment. Let's look at the second half of verse 15. But you have received And instead of a spirit, you could also translate this as the spirit, the Holy Spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of adoption because when he comes into your heart, he confirms and makes real the truth that God has already adopted you into his family. The Holy Spirit makes that real to believers. All of us were born into the devil's family. Colossians 1 says that God rescued us and translated us out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's dear son. We were born into the wrong kingdom. We had to get out of that one and brought into the right one. That's what happens at conversion. Now in the ancient world, adoption was really common and it was really important because If a man had no sons, his his name could die out when he died and he had no sons to take on the family name or to give his inheritance to. So often in the ancient world, a man would adopt another son into his family so that that son could carry on his name and he'd have someone to bequeath the inheritance to. And when he did adopt a son, three legal steps were taken immediately. First of all, the child was adopted into his family permanently. If you adopted someone, you couldn't adopt them one day and disown them the next. You ha- you were making a legal commitment that this son is going to be your son forever. Number two, that adopted son received all the rights of, of any other son or any other child that was within his family. And number three... He lost all the rights and all the responsibilities in his old family. It was as though he became a brand new person. If he had any debts, those debts were canceled. It's as though he no longer existed. <laughs> the, the person he used to be was gone and he's now this new person. So any debts that he used to have, they're canceled, out. they're abolished, and now he's a brand new person with no debts. And, of course, that all translates into our Christianity. When we are adopted, we're adopted permanently, which goes to the question our sister was asking, which we're going to get to later, permanently. Secondly, we receive all the rights of every other son within God's family. And thirdly, all of the debts, the debt of sin, that we had accumulated is gone when we're brought into God's family as his son. Now, what is Paul's point in verse 15? When we're saved, God has replaced the fear of a slave towards his master with the love of a son towards his father. That's his point. When a person is converted, his feelings, his affections toward God change. That's what he's saying here in verse 15. Something new happens within his heart. You see, Christianity is not just cerebral. It's not just mental. It's not just believing certain correct doctrines. You can you can believe all of the right doctrines and not be a Christian. It has to do with your heart as well as your head. And Paul here is talking about the heart in verse 15. You can believe every tenet of the Westminster Confession of Faith or the Heidelberg Catechism or the Philadelphia Confession of Faith, which are all great confessions. But if it's just something that you believe intellectually and you've never been transformed on the inner man, you're still a child of Satan. Now, Christianity is not just a matter of right beliefs. It has to do with right feelings, right affections, holy affections that are produced within your heart for God. And how does this happen? Well, if we go back to chapter 5, verse 5, we see what happens initially. Paul says there that the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to us. That's the first thing. Now this isn't talking about our love for God. It's talking about God's love for us. The love of God for us has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to us. So the Spirit of God makes God's love for us real. The Spirit tells you God loves you 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 are enveloped in this love. He says here it's poured out within your heart like taking a pitcher of water and pouring it out. This love of God comes into your soul and you you experience it. And I'm not talking about just something intellectual. I'm talking about an actual experience that believers have. We we know we experience, we feel, we we have affections. We we understand this intuitively, not just mentally, this love of God towards us. The Spirit does this to us. Now, once that happens, when we know that we're deeply loved, eternally loved by God, then the Holy Spirit brings a response from us back to God. And that's what we're seeing here in Romans chapter 8. What's the response? Well, he says, you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. Now, here he says, we cry out, Abba, Father. But in Galatians 4, it says the Spirit cries out, Abba, Father. So which one is it? Is it the Holy Spirit doing the crying out? Or is it the believer doing the crying out? It's both. The Spirit is crying out within us, causing us to cry out. He's the moving cause within us that brings forth this cry, Papa, Daddy, Father. The word cry out is an interesting word. It's a word full of strong emotion. Like if if you do a a search for that phrase in the Greek through the New Testament, you're going to see that this is a word that means to scream or to call aloud or to shriek. (laughs) It was used of the demons in Matthew 8.29 that said, What business do we have with you, O Son of God? It was used in Matthew 9.27 of the two blind men that said, Jesus, Messiah, have mercy on us, Son of David. It was used in Matthew 14:30 when Peter's walking on the water and he starts to sink and he says, "Lord, save me." And every one of those situations, they're desperate and they're crying with passion for someone to help them. That's the word that's used here, cry out, <clears throat> crying out passionately to God who can save. Now, the words that we cry out are the words "Abba, Father." The word Abba is unusual because we don't use that word. It's an Aramaic word. The word Father comes to us from Greek. They mean the same thing. But the word Abba was what a tiny little child, when it's first learning how to speak, this is the word it would use to talk to its daddy. Abba. See how easy that is? Abba. It's a lot easier than saying Father. (laughs) So Abba. So today... They, a little child might say, "Dad, Dada. That's pretty easy to say. Or Papa. Those are the words. But they're just using words that a little tiny child would use to address his father. Abba. Father. When God saves somebody, he sends his spirit into their hearts and he causes them to cry out, You're my daddy. You're my Papa. You're my father. You're not just a master who's going to punish me and pour his wrath on me. You're my daddy who loves me and cares about me and is good to me and is for me. You see, everything changes from a cruel taskmaster to a loving father. When a person's genuinely born again, there's a switch because the Holy Spirit inside of him causes him to cry out. He instinctively knows that his relationship to God is different now. Now, when a baby comes into the world, that baby instinctively starts to cry when it has a need, right? When the baby's hungry, cries. When it's thirsty, cries. When it's too hot, cries. Too cold, cries. When it's wet, cries. It cries about every every time it has a need because it instinctively knows, I've got a mommy and a daddy who's going to take care of that need if I just start crying. Well, when we're born again, we instinctively cry, Because we know instinctively, intuitively, the Spirit of God communicates to us that we have a father who can meet our needs. And that's why there is this crying out, you're my daddy, you're my father. Now, think about this. What's the difference between a slave and a son? Because he says we have not received a spirit of slavery But we have received a spirit of adoption as sons. We're not a slave. In a sense, we are still slaves. The Bible, Paul says he's a slave of Jesus Christ. But that's not what Paul's talking about here. He's contrasting two different kinds of relationships. The relationship of a slave to his master is what we used to have before we were born again. Now it's the relationship of a son to a father. So let's think about the difference between those. The relationship of a slave to his master is based on his performance, his work. The relationship of a son to his father is based on his position. If a slave does poor work, he can be punished. He can even be sold. He can be totally disowned, cast out. But if a son does poor work, he might be corrected by his father, but he'll never be disowned. The son is secure. The slave is not. The son's Security is based on blood ties, his position in the family. And so why am I not afraid of God's wrath? I'm not afraid of it anymore because I'm his son. If I was a slave, yes, I'd be afraid of it because it would all depend on how good I was working, how hard I was working, if I obeyed him well enough for him to have favor on me. But all that's gone when you become a son. I'm accepted. I'm loved. I'm blessed. I'm privileged because I'm in the family. A son is secure in his father's love. Jesus said in John 6, 37, all that the father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me, what? I will never, never cast out. You will not be disowned. If you come to him and are made a son, he's not going to cast you out. So the second great truth is that the Spirit causes sons to cry out, Abba, Father. I'm wondering if you have experienced that. Has that happened to you? Do you cry out to God, Papa, Daddy, Father? Third great truth here. The Spirit testifies with our spirit that we are the children of God. That's verse 16, the spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. This is talking about assurance of salvation, which is a really important theme that we need to talk about. How can a person know whether he's really saved or not? Well, verse 16 gives us one of the ways. As far as I can tell, there are three different tests of assurance of salvation. One of them is the objective promises of Scripture, like John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. There's a promise. If you believe in the son, you will not perish. Instead, you will have eternal life. If I believe in the son, then I can apply that promise to myself. And there's a sense of assurance that I get because <laughs> God's word tells me. And God cannot lie that if I believe in his son, I'll have eternal life. Well, I do. So I have a sense of assurance now, or John three thirty six, He who believes in the son has eternal life. There's another one. There's dozens of them in the Bible. So that's the first one. The objective promises of Scripture. Second way you can know is the signs of eternal life. When a paramedic goes out and there's been an accident and a guy's lying on the road, the very first thing they do is test him for vital signs. Does he have a heartbeat? Is there any brain activity? Is he breathing? Okay, these are signs of life. Well, 1st John chapter 1 2 3 4 5. The whole book of 1st John gives us signs of life to either know we're living or dead. Some of those signs are that if you're alive spiritually, you don't practice sin. If you're alive spiritually, you practice righteousness. If you're alive spiritually, you love the brethren. If you're alive spiritually, you believe that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. If you're alive spiritually, you overcome the world. So you can read them for yourself in 1st John. These are signs that you have life. Okay. There is a third way. And that's what we have here in verse 16. It's the witness of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. The first two ways are objective ways. You can they're, they're external. You can look at them. Do I believe that promise? Yes. Okay. Do I see these signs of life? Yes. This one is internal. This one is subjective. This one is supernatural. This is a direct communication between the Holy Spirit who lives in you and your spirit. He communicates something to you inside of you. That's what it says, right? The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. The Spirit of God tells you. Now, how does he do that? I believe he does that the very way we just read in verse 15. He comes into you and he causes you to cry out, Abba, Father. Not because you someone told you to do that or you believe it intellectually, but because instinctively the new life that comes in causes you to know, God is my father now. I love him and he loves me. He's always loved me and he will always love me. He's my daddy. So it's a whole different way of gaining assurance. Now, when all three of these tests of assurance line up in your life, you can have really strong assurance of salvation. And when you don't see one or more of these, your assurance will weaken. So the third way is very different from the first two. It's my prayer that if you are a true Christian... You'll have strong assurance. God wants you to be assured. He wants you to know of his love for you and to take comfort from that. So let me just wrap up our time today and ask you some questions to consider. These are thought questions. First of all, are you putting sin to death in your life? Are you waging war on your sin? Are you repenting of it? Are you confessing it? Are you striving? Are you fighting the good fight of faith? Only those who wage war on sin have the biblical right to consider themselves a child of God, according to Paul here. Number two, how do you feel towards God? I'm not asking what you believe about him. How do you feel towards him? Can you only relate to him as a harsh master who's just waiting to pour out his wrath on you and punish you for your sins? If that's how you feel toward God, you've probably never been converted because all that changes when God saves a person. Thirdly, have you experienced the Holy Spirit welling up within you and causing you to cry out to God, daddy, father? Now we, we look at that and I could never call God daddy. That just seems so irreverent. But I think there's an irreverent way of calling God daddy. It's a term of intimacy, isn't it? Daddy, it's a term of closeness, of of total acceptance. You Like, Daddy, Daddy, he's running down the road to get his, his father's walking home from work, and he's just running, Daddy, Daddy, you know, his total acceptance. He knows he's loved by the father. He's not getting whacked upside the head. He knows that Dad's going to scoop him up in his arms and give him a kiss on the cheek and say, how you doing, buddy? How was your day, you know? That's the kind of term that instinctively rises up within the born-again soul. God's my daddy. He loves me. Have you experienced that? Four, do you have loving, confident, joyful affection for God? Not just correct orthodox thoughts about God, but affection for God. The Christian life is both it's both um, thought and heart. It's both of those combined together. We need the truth in, to feed our mind, but that just fuels the affections in our soul for God. Do you love the Lord? Do you truly love him? We need to answer that. Do you have holy affections for God? Five, do you have assurance of salvation? Now, we have to be careful here because some people have assurance of salvation that shouldn't have. They're self-deceived. They tell you that they're going to heaven and they're not. They're not waging war on sin. They're, they're living in sin habitually. They have no right to even think that they're saved. So, we need to be careful. We also have people who should have assurance of salvation who don't. Because they're timid and they're, I don't know, they, they're just, they feel it's too much for them to possibly believe that they could be saved. But yet God has done a work in their soul. They've been born again. They love him. He's transformed their heart. So if that's you, I want you to have assurance today that God is your father. Do you have assurance? My friends, we need to marvel this morning that we... Or a son or a daughter of the Most High God. What could be better? I mean, really think about that. Is there any greater privilege in the universe than for God to say, You're my son. You're my daughter. Nothing will ever separate me from you, from from the love I have towards you. I mean, I. that's why John says in First John 3.1, Beloved, see how great a love the Father has for us that we would be called the sons of God. So it's my prayer for you that you are assured of that today and you can walk in the comfort and the joy of knowing that God loves you. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, would you bring these things to pass? Cause these truths to take root and bear fruit within our souls. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you've come in and you've poured out the love of God within our heart. And you've caused us to cry out, Abba, Father. Thank you, Father God, that you are our Father. Thank you that we can have access to you as a little boy running to jump into his father's lap. Boldly we approach your throne, Lord. Boldly, boldly, with confidence, because you're a Father. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.